Live from the JLE in London, join us for 20 minutes weekly with Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tetz, hosted by myself, Mena Reisner, as we delve into the hottest topics of the 21st century. From the origins of the universe, vaccine conspiracies, genetics and Jewish law, relationships and everything in between, you are listening to Conversations with Rabbi Tatz. Welcome back, Rabbi Tatz, to episode two of this series on transplants and the halachic ramifications of it. So I just want to continue with what we left off yesterday. Just to briefly recap, we discussed organ transplants. We discussed the, the news story of the pig transplanting the brain to the human being. Heart. Uh, it was a pig heart to a human being. Pig heart, yeah. sorry. <laughs> Wondering what would happen with the pig brain to a human well, being. some people might be improved. <laughs> um, and we also discussed the moment of death. I wanted to speak about the near-death experiences that uh, we've all read about and people seeing the light, especially if they were brain-dead. Also, what brain-dead means. If the soul really does leave, if it comes back, is that called revival of the death? And all of that. Thank you. Sure. Let's begin with that, although I think uh, we'll get more out of talking about transplants. But let's cover your question about so-called near-death experiences. I'm very skeptical about the meaning and value of those experiences altogether. And I'll explain why. What you're describing is people who have been through near-death experiences. They were going through an operation or they had their heart stopped or whatever it was. In Israel, they like to call this clinical death, which means that they met the criteria for death, namely no heartbeat, no respiration, etc., or there was a resuscitation attempt keeping their circulation going, and they had certain out-of-body experiences. Some of them say they felt themselves floating over their bodies. Some say they looked down upon themselves from the top of the, you know, the room. They could see everyone, you know, a sort of disembodied experience. Others say that they saw certain lights approaching them, or they went through various spiritual levels and heard voices, heard voices, and saw all sorts of uh, levels of people in that world, and so forth and so on. I have a few reservations about that. First of all, giving it the maximum credibility that these people are sincere, these are not hallucinating individuals, that they really mean it, they really do, they, giving it the maximal credibility, I think it's of very limited value, very, very limited value. First of all, even if they met criteria for, let's call it what they call clinical death, even if they did, none of them have ever told us anything we don't know already. In other words, when they describe moving towards a light and a blissful sort of a feeling, I mean, we have clear sources for these things, right? The Talmud talks about moving down a channel after death and seeing one's relatives coming to greet one. Uh, you know, so they will not surprise us in the least. Also, people who say they saw people in that world, you know, in a blissful state of existence or suffering for their sins. I mean, again, we know that. So what does it really give us? I think most people are fascinated simply to have corroboration or confirmation of some sort of post-life experience. But point number one is we've never learned anything that we don't know from these so-called experiences anyway. Point two is, and I think this is the main point, do we really call that death? In other words, if I were looking for corroboration of an after-death experience, I would need to hear from somebody who actually died. Now, these people didn't die. The, the best proof of that, of course, is that in English we call it a near-death experience. Near-death may be very near-death, but it's not death. Incidentally, when I, when I discussed in our, our last conversation um, whether a person without a heart or the stopped heart is considered dead or not, the definition we use, which covers that base, 
we say that the Jewish definition of death is irreversible cessation of heartbeat, respiration, etc. Irreversible, which means that in a successful resuscitation or heart transplant or heart operation, that was not irreversible. So we need not only that all life functions have ceased, but that has become irreversible. This indeed is the reason why the Hebrew Kedisha, the Jewish Burial Society personnel, <coughs> do not touch someone at all after they have ostensibly died. They normally wait 15 minutes or 20 minutes or half an hour. Rosh Sternbuch personally told me he would never allow waiting less than five minutes. Why? Because we know that five minutes after the heart has stopped beating, it will not restart. You will not be able to get a heart to restart. Again, I'm not talking about unusual circumstances of low temperatures and, and various other circumstances I'm talking about in normal normal circumstances, the most usual circumstances. And we want to be sure that the person has died, right, before diagnosing death. Now, all of that is required for definition of death. If someone has these visions and experiences and then came back to tell us we would say that may well be a near-death experience, but it's not a death experience. Now, how much can I extrapolate from a near-death experience to a death experience? Maybe they're totally different. Maybe not. Maybe that would be a useful... It's entirely possible that a person going through a near-death experience experiences the early stages of what it might feel like to be dying, but I can't be sure about that at all. And therefore, my main point is that these people who have had these experiences, again, without casting any aspersions on the integrity of the experiences, not to say that they're having some sort of uh, hallucinations or recalling some subliminal memories that they have from hearing descriptions in the past, which is all quite possible, but that they were experiencing some, something genuine. I don't believe it tells us much that we don't know already, which makes it of very limited value. And secondly, I think categorically we cannot call those death experiences. How parallel are they to dying? We just don't know. So I'm very skeptical about the value of those things. And if they would tell us something that we don't know already, we would, that would question the legitimacy either way. Yes, that would depend on whether they tell us something we don't know that conflicts with what we know and authentic Torah sources, or in fact, would simply be neutral information and we'd be quite open to that. But until somebody comes back from the next world, we have, of course, examples in the Talmud of people who have, so to speak, visited the other world and, in fact, brought back tales and so on and so on. Those are agadic incidents we have in the Talmud, and there we have Torah backing for those things. So we can rely on what the Torah tells us and whatever the insights our rabbis are telling us about those things. But these near-death experiences that become sort of viral news, I think, are of relatively superstitious, if I may say, and limited value. Right. So sorry to veer you off the chosen topic. Back to transplants. Right. So we said that we would divide transplants into both living and non-living donor issues. Let's talk about the issues relating to a non-living donor. Let's, let's deal with that category first. So here we have a classic situation. Somebody needs an organ, be it a heart or a liver or a lung or perhaps a kidney, and we are waiting for a non-living donor. We're waiting for somebody who will die, who will be compatible, who have given, who have given consent that their heart may be used after death. And once we've covered all those bases, we could harvest the heart of the dead donor and implant it into the body of the recipient. And of course, if it were healthy and we could get it going again, we would save the life of the recipient. Now, what is required in order to do that? Here I would divide the organs that we use for transplantation into two categories. There are those that can be taken after death with ease, like bone and skin and the cornea of the eye. There are a number of organs where one can wait for the donor to die. And then we could take the organ and transplant it into the recipient. That would obviate the problem, bypass the problem of what is the moment of death. We could wait until the person is clearly dead. You can wait till the person's been dead for an hour and quite easily take bone 
and skin, and they will do very well. In fact, I should point out that although we require a recipient to be present before we do that, because we're mutilating a dead body, which has three potential Torah prohibitions, that means do an autopsy or mutilate a dead body, according to some opinions, both Jewish and non-Jewish bodies, but certainly Jewish bodies, we would have three potential problems. One is called nivul hames, which is desecration of a dead body. The second is the prohibition of benefiting from a body. One may, may have no benefit from a dead body. And thirdly, there's a very important requirement to bury all of a dead body, not just most of them, even blood, even blood and other things. We have a very important obligation to bury all of a person. Now, you potentially transgressing all three of those when you are taking an organ to save a life. However, of course, we would transgress those to save a life. But we would need the person, in fact, to have died before we could do that. There's no way we could take an organ from a living person, killing them in the process, right? That's the problem. And we'll talk about that in a bit more detail. But let's talk about a person who has clearly died. So we want to take some bone for a bone graft or something like that. I should point out to you that although we need a recipient to be present before we mutilate a body, in some circumstances, for example, in modern Israel, where there's a constant fear of terrorist attack or even war, the rabbinic authorities in Israel have allowed bone and skin to be harvested even when there are no recipients for the purpose of freezing them so that soldiers, if they get injured or burnt, there will always be readily available a supply of skins for skin grafting over burns and bone for bone reconstruction. Now, although we don't have recipients at the present time needing them, which means we're going to harvest these tissues and freeze them, but since we cannot afford to wait, if a soldier is burnt and needs a skin graft, we can't go looking for a donor at that point in time. Since the country is threatened militarily, that is tantamount to a present threat, what the lawyers would call a real and present danger. And because of that, the rabbis throughout the years of Israel's recent history have allowed organs like that, tissues like that, to be harvested, even though we do not have a donor now. Similar rationale that we will allow a field hospital to be set up on Shabbat, even though hostilities have not begun, because if shooting begins, you can't start setting up a hospital then. And therefore, we will break Shabbat. If hostilities look imminent, we will break Shabbat to be prepared in order to be real. In fact, we could go even further than that. You may find it interesting to know Rav Asher Weiss, for example, has instructed the Israeli tank crews right, to conduct themselves as normal on Shabbos. In other words, for example, I'll give you an example. You have a tank crew, three, four, five men in a tank. I'm talking about an army tank. And the turret of the tank is rotated hydraulically and electronically. You could theoretically rotate it by hand. You could theoretically rotate it, but you can disconnect the electronics. And of course, this is used as emergency backup when the tank is damaged. The question was asked of Rav Asher Weiss, who's the, one of the leading rabbinic decisors in Israel today, both for the army and for the police and the rescue divers, etc., etc. They asked him, when soldiers are forced to be in a tank during training, whatever it is on Shabbat, should they minimize Shabbat infringement by disconnecting the mechanics and using things by hand. And very interesting, he ruled no, that even in a training exercise where there are no hostilities, they should actually use the electronics as normal. Why? Because, he says, and of course this, this logic is worthy of any military commander and military trainer. I've been in the army myself. I can tell you this is certainly true. The purpose of training is so that you are so well-oiled in your movements that when you're under stress and pressure and under fire, you'll do the right thing. Now, if you're going to train people, okay, and you're going to get them to do weird and bizarre, abnormal ways of doing things, you're not going to do it electronically, you're going to do it by hand, 
sooner or later somebody's going to be endangered, either because under fire they will make the wrong move because the standard operating procedures are not being smoothly in, uh, um, uh, employed, or because somebody's going to forget that the thing has been reconnected and be crushed by the mechanism. Okay, in other words, there's going to be confusion during the normal and abnormal states, and that is extremely dangerous in a situation like a tank. And therefore, amazingly, he has ruled that they should conduct themselves normally in that life-threatening situation even before they get into that because sooner or later somebody's going to die if you don't do that. And there are many other rulings like that we have in Halakha. For example, an ambulance on Shabbat can return to its base even if it hasn't been called in a circumstance like a big city where it's almost inevitable that it will subsequently be called again on Shabbat. So there are many, there are many and of course you well know the rule that people traveling to save a life on Shabbat may indeed travel back afterwards because we're afraid if we don't let them do that, people will be hesitant to travel out to save a life on Shabbat. So these are all uh, areas of Shabbat observance. Now, when we talk about a dead donor, if we're talking about tissues and organs like bone, skin, etc., there we have the issue of desecrating a body, which is a dead body, for the purpose of saving life. So covering skin grafts, skin burns, etc. What about the cornea? Is that saving life? So you're taking the outer layer of the eye, very, very fine, perhaps one cell thick layer of the, of the eye, which is necessary to preserve the integrity of the eye. You're taking that to return sight to somebody who cannot see. Now, you're desecrating a body to do that. Are you saving a life? We can desecrate a body to save a life, but is saving sight saving life? The Gemara equates blindness to lack loss of life. Beautiful. So, you're quite correct. The Gemara equates equates a dead a blind person being in some way like a dead person but let me remind you that the Gemara also equates a very poor person to somebody who's dead now you cannot break shabbat to, uh, to give somebody money or, you know it's not that kind of dead mm. so yes indeed in some deep sense certain childless people people with leprosy people who are blind people who are poor they have some parallel with a person who lacks a dimension of life but it's not yet in the halachic category of saving life so therefore the question of saving sight has been raised. Rabbi Unterman, many years ago, dealt with this question and others. Is this indeed saving life? The consensus of rabbinic opinion is certainly we are saving the sight of both eyes that is life-saving because a person who cannot see at all can fall down the stairs and break their neck. And in many ways, they certainly could be endangered. And if you can restore sight to a sightless person, we would have no trouble defining that as saving sight. A more interesting question is, what about a person who can see with one eye, but you're transplanting a cornea to give them sight in the second eye? What you will thereby achieve is giving them good binocular vision and improve their faculty of sight, but they could see beforehand. This is a more complex halachic question, and by and large, it has been, it has been allowed for many reasons. Uh, taking a cornea, for example, is less of a mutilation than other operations. In fact, it is so minor, it cannot even, not even be seen. So... When you take the cornea from a dead person, the degree of mutilation is in fact invisible. Secondly, if I may point out, some rabbis have pointed out that since a dead person's eyes are closed, so any disfigurement of the eye inside is considered less of a disfigurement than something that's visible. However, I should add that all our rabbinic authorities are very insistent that when the cornea is taken from a dead person, only the cornea should be taken. The method in many non-Jewish contexts is to take out the whole eye and then on your lab bench, so to speak, strip the cornea. Now that's unnecessary. So although it may be technically easier to do that way, but it's a totally unnecessary disfigurement of the dead to take out the eye. And therefore, we require 
that the cornea is taken from the person without enucleating the eye so that the disfigurement to the dead is extremely minimal and you're doing it to save sight of a recipient and so there that we allow. Just hope no one's eating while they're listening to this. Do you think the same would be said regarding hearing? If there was a way of taking some, I'm not sure what, if it's physically possible, but if the same would be said, let's say a deaf person and they could restore their hearing with some sort, something inside the ear of a dead person. Yes, so we don't at the moment have a transplant that can be done to do that. Here, probably the question would be, could we, could we break Shabbat, let's say, to restore someone's hearing? I'm not aware of any response on that subject. I'll venture my own amateur opinion. And I think that probably would be allowed. The reason being that a deaf person also might be in danger, cannot hear an approaching car, etc. I would guess that that f- I, I would guess that the same logic might might well apply. However, that that remains to be validated. Now we come to the second category. And what about things like organs can be taken only while they are fresh? Bone, skin, corneas, no problem. But a heart needs to be taken absolutely fresh, virtually while it's still beating. The reason is that a metabolic rate of organs like the heart is so high that if you allow the heart to stop in the donor and then half an hour later you try to harvest it, it's completely useless. That means the chemistry of a beating heart is so frenetically active that as soon as that chemistry stops and the blood supply and oxygen supply to the organ fails, the cells begin to die irreversibly. And after a couple of minutes, in fact, they start to go through chemical changes that make them impossible to revive. So if you wait till somebody dies and 10 minutes later you take their heart, you'll never get it going again in the recipient. Now this has meant that the only way you can transplant a heart is by taking it as it stops beating. In fact, I must tell you, the usual way it's done is take a donor who has got a beating heart, they define them legally as dead. Why? Because the brain is no longer functioning. This is known as brainstem death. So now we have a legally dead person whose heart is beating. The lungs are operating because the machine is breathing for them, but the heart is in fact beating. They open the chest of a patient with a beating heart because legally the person's dead. And then they stop the heart by paralyzing it chemically, cut it out and transplant it into the person who's the recipient. Now, of course, you can readily see that begs the question, was the donor dead? Unfortunately, there's no other way to do it because you cannot wait until they've clearly died and then take the heart out later. This also applies to organs like, to some extent, lungs, to some extent, the liver. There are certain organs that are so metabolically active, you can't wait until they have clearly died. This raises the fascinating and very vexed issue of brain death or brainstem death. More generally, what is the moment of death? If the moment of death is when the heart stops, then you cannot do transplants until you've waited for the heart to stop. You could, of course, wait till the heart stops and then cut it out immediately. But that raises many questions. One question is, let's say you waited for the heart to stop. You didn't interfere at all. And as soon as the heart stops, you pounced on the person and cut their chest open and took the heart immediately. The problem would be this. Listen, I hope our listeners are listening very carefully to this. If you could take out a heart immediately after it stopped, and put it into the chest of the recipient and then get it beating again. Well, what's to say you couldn't get it beating in the chest of the donor? Again, you've taken a heart that is stopped. You don't attempt to get it going again. Why? You want to transplant it. You cut it out, put it in the recipient, get it going again. But one second, if the heart was healthy enough to get going again in the recipient, probably you could have gotten it going again in the original donor. So why didn't you try to resuscitate and save the donor? Because they were brain dead. Indeed. Indeed. So this depends critically on the legal definition of death. That's exactly the point. To cover this, a recent attempt, and I say recent, I mean the last few years, has been to use what's called 
beating heart donors, beating or circulatory donors. What do they do? To cover the religious and ethical objections of taking hearts from living people, what they have done is they've waited indeed until the heart stops. So they've taken people, let's say, who are branded or comatose or not expected to survive and have given permission for this. And then they will wait for the heart to stop, very often in an operating theater situation. And as the heart stops, we now meet the criteria for death, not on brainstem basis, but on heart basis. Now we can, they wait 90 seconds or two minutes in some cases, and then the heart does not automatically start again. The feeling is that if you waited 90 seconds or 120 seconds and the heart is not auto-resuscitated, now start being again, we can say that it will not start again. Take out the heart, put it in the recipient. But again, the problem is that was clearly not irreversible failure of the heart because it's clearly not irreversible. You reversed it in the recipient, which means you're using trickery here to define the person as dead. You're not using brainstem criteria. You're using heart stoppage. But again, we need, this is why I went into so much detail when we discussed our irreversible heart stoppage. If the heart stops irreversibly, well, then you won't be able to reverse it in the recipient and the person will. So you need a heart that is reversibly stopped, meaning you could get it going again. What right do you have to define the donor as dead? Now, this is not a Jewish objection, I should point out to you. Many secular non-Jewish ethicists have raised the same problem. And they have said, you cannot get around the problem of brain death by saying when the heart stops, the person's dead, because clearly everybody agrees we need irreversible cessation. And this clearly ain't. That is the problem. So many of these ethicists have said, let's bite the bullet and admit that we are taking the hearts of living people. Why not? Let's say this. The person's brain dead, okay? They're not going to recover. No brain dead people ever recover if they correctly diagnose as brain dead. Let's not pretend that the person has died because the heart has stopped. Let's say we are taking the heart of a living person, but it's a moribund person who clearly will die. Let society make a rule and a law and an ethic that it's acceptable to take the heart from a person who's about to die, thereby killing them in order to save a life. What's wrong with that? In fact, many people would want that done. They would say, if I'm about to die and there's no hope for me and my brain is totally dysfunctional, I'll never survive at all. Absolutely. Take my heart while it's beating and save someone else's life. I don't mind. That legal question. Well, that may be a very valid ethical argument, but it's not a Jewish argument because if you're killing the donor by taking the heart, we have no authority to do that. True, they would die anyway. And true, you're saving a life. But Judaism does not allow us to kill somebody, no matter what the quality of life is. We are indeed entitled to desist from saving somebody in certain circumstances. People have the right to say, I don't wish to continue being treated in Judaism under certain narrowly defined circumstances. But we have no authority to kill somebody. And that has been the debate about transplants of living tissues. Now, that brings us to the final point for this session, and that is what is the moment of death? Because if we can define the moment of death accurately, then we have no trouble taking organs. And this is a major, major halachic discussion. The original criteria, which are described in the Talmud, are cessation of heartbeat and respiration. One or other or both of those. This is not so clear. The context in the Talmud is a person who has been buried under rubble, let's say a house collapsed, and we're now digging desperately to find people who have been buried under the rubble. Let's say, and we may do this on Shabbat as well, So, of course, to save a life. So let's say a ton of rubble and bricks and mortar have fallen on a person, and we are desperately digging on Shabbat to expose them. Now the Talmud asks, how far do you continue digging when you get to the body? Let's say you, you, you get to the chest, 
and you uncover the chest, the head and the rest of the body is still covered in debris, and you see there's no movement of the chest. Is that good enough to diagnose death? If it is, stop desecrating Shabbat. If it's not, carry on until you get to the mouth and nose. The other opinion in the Talmud is, well, if you uncover them to the point that you get to their nose and there's no respiration, right? the old traditional criteria were to hold a downy feather under the nose to see if there's any movement of air, if you get to the mouth and nose and detect no breathing, then if there's no breathing, they're dead. Stop your desecration of Shabbat right away. Or, no, maybe you need to see that there's no heartbeat either. Continue until you uncover the chest. Then the Talmud says, there's really no argument between these positions. The discussion really was, from which direction were the rescuers digging? Were they digging from the feet up or from the head down? <laughs> now, the, the bottom line of this Gemara is, there's a very interesting discussion, mainly based in the Chassam Sofa and other of our great authorities, which of the two do we need? Do we need to reassure ourselves that there's no heartbeat detectable in the chest? Or do we need the traditional, old-fashioned, well-known criteria, no breathing at the nose? Today, the Hebrew Kedisha, as I mentioned before, when they attend somebody who's in the process of dying, they indeed check at the nose that there's no respiration because nishmat chayim the verse in the Torah says, all those who have life in the breath of the nose, the breath of life in the nose. So that is a traditional criterion. Now, some authorities require that we diagnose no respiration and no heartbeat. But be that as it may, the discussion centers here around heartbeat. Of course, if there's no heartbeat, the breathing will stop almost immediately. And if there's no breathing, the heart will stop within seconds, if not a minute or two. So in the old world, of course, there was no real importance to the distinction because if one stopped, the other would stop. Today, that's not true. Today, we can have respiration stop and a heartbeat continue because we can supplant the respiration with a machine. So we can put a person on a ventilator, keep them breathing, even though there's no natural breathing and the heart will continue. So today, we have a separation between those. Now, what happened in recent years was, and in fact, this began in the 1960s. Professor Barnard in South Africa, late 1967, December 67, transplanted the first living human heart. Now, how did he do that? He took a heart from a donor who was not exactly brain dead, but Professor Barnard felt so badly brain injured that there was no hope for this young lady to recover. And therefore, as he admitted later, he didn't think she was dead, but he thought she was hopeless. And in order to save a life, he thought it was ethically justified. Of course, he came under tremendous criticism for this, particularly because there were, there were political consequences as well. One of the patients was white. One of the patients was colored. Yeah. So that lays the whole South African apartheid uh, drama. But in fact, the question was waiting for a person so badly head injured that there's no hope for the recovery and then taking the heart. The way that crystallized in the ethical and halachic discussions was could you possibly define somebody who's brain dead as dead? If you could define somebody who is brain dead as dead. Now, in brain stem death, what happens is, let's say you have a brain that is completely annihilated and has no brain function left at all, terrible head injury, no brain function whatsoever. In those circumstances, breathing will stop immediately. The reason breathing stops is there's a breathing center in the base of the brain that causes you to take every breath. Therefore, breathing will stop immediately. But heartbeat will continue. The heart beats autonomously, does not need the brain. There are messages from the brain that tell the heart to beat faster or slower, but you don't need, you can take a human heart isolated in a dish of oxygenated solution, and if you get that right, the heart will continue beating. And many biological, biology students have seen frogs' hearts beating in a dish on their own, and therefore the human heart will continue beating even without a brain. Well, that's very interesting. If there's no respiration, but we provide respiration with a machine, 
and the heart is beating autonomously, but there's no brain function, possibly we could define that person as dead. That was the rationale behind brain stem death. Why would this be important? The most important consequence would be we could now do transplants. The transplant community has by and large agreed for many years that we ought to follow what we call the dead donor rule. Dead donor rule means we cannot take organs from a living donor. We need the donor to die. Now the question is, what is death? But we need death. If for cessation of heartbeat or respiratory death, cool, we, we use that. But now perhaps we can update that definition and say that brainstem death is death. And if that's the legal definition, then I don't care that the heart's beating, the person's dead. And that was the major move shift, which was forced not by ethical and philosophical considerations, but by heart transplant considerations. To get a supply of hearts, we will need to take beating hearts. Perhaps we can base definition of death on the brain. Well, what happened in 1968 was a Harvard committee opined that uh, researched brainstem death. And they came to the conclusion that a person who is brainstem dead is irreversibly comatose. They did not use the word death. They used the concept of irreversible coma. And in fact, good research has shown that if you have irreversible coma due to brainstem death, people like that do not recover. How long do they live? Two days, three days, 17 days in some, I think the longest recorded case is 30 or 40 days. So people do live for some days. For unknown reasons, they ultimately die if there's no brain function at all, but the heart is beating. In 1980, a President's Commission in the United States accepted that as a legal definition of it, made the recommendation, and very soon thereafter, all of the United States, all of Britain, South Africa, all Western countries, basically Japan, basically all countries in the Western world today use brainstem criteria for death. There are various requirements, how you diagnose it, how do you check it, you have to stop the machine and make the sure that there's no breathing autonomous breathing attempt. Some countries require you to check it 24 hours later again. Some countries require the doctors to be diagnosing brain death as at least two. One doctor and one doctor independent of the transplant team. So there's no bias. Today the, the criteria have been much simplified. Most jurisdictions today don't require two 24-hour separated tests. But basically that came into broad use and today in virtually the whole developed world the definition of death is brainstem death, which means when the brain is hopelessly damaged, brain and brainstem, no respiratory effort at all, machine keeping the breathing going, heart still beating, the patient is legally dead. Many disagree with this on ethical grounds, that this is not a good definition. Some say, therefore, you're killing people. Some say, no. As I said before, this is not real death, but it's good enough to use for transplants because you're saving lives and the person was hopeless anyway. What is the Jewish approach? So, Many years ago, Ramosha Feinstein was asked this question. And the problem is that indeed he gave an answer and he spoke about it a number of occasions, but it's not clear exactly what his opinion was. So his sons, members of his family, a son-in-law of his who professor biology, and many others have opined what was Ramosha Feinstein's opinion. He was the broad pair of halachic shoulders. And if we only knew exactly what he said or meant, now both sides of the debate are quite clear what he meant. One side says that he said clearly that brainstem death is good enough. And some say he told me that personally. Others say we don't see that in his writings. It's not so clear. So unfortunately, although he would be a wonderful source for this, there are arguments about what indeed he said. Others have had different opinions over the years. There was an attempt at one point to say that brainstem death is like the head being removed. They called it physiological decapitation, which means that if the head's removed, somebody's clearly dead. 
Others objected and said, no, the heart, the head has not been removed. It may be akin to that, but it's not that. A more modern attempt has been to say that when the brain stem has died, there's no breathing, which is true. Now, if there's no breathing, you are dead. And others have said, well, that's only true in a person who has no heartbeat. And they're not applicable. Let me bring us up to date and we'll end our session with that. Today, most of our highly respected, let's call them right-wing orthodox rabbinic personalities, have ruled that brainstem death is a problematic definition. Um, Rabbi Yashiv and Rav Vosner and many of the great authorities in Israel, the London Bet Din has taken that position as well. However, there are many learned personalities in the orthodox world who think that brainstem death is acceptable. Indeed, the Israeli chief rabbinate has ruled in that way. The Israeli chief rabbinate has given a ruling, and they follow that today in Israel, that under very carefully defined circumstances, they are very, very fussy about the criteria, much more than many other countries. They require extra testing and all sorts of checks and balances that has to be filled in a, in a legal registry. They have all sorts of requirements. They have ruled that brainstem death is in fact acceptable if you meet all the criteria, and therefore Israel today has a heart transplant program, and it has a very active transplant program because there are very learned and uh, highly respected rabbinic personalities who feel that brainstem death is a valid definition. However, it is far from universally accepted. There are a number of groups who advocate very, very passionately for accepting brainstem death, and they feel that they're saving lives by, by doing that. Others feel equally passionately that although you're saving lives, you're killing people to take those organs. At the moment, as I said, the jury's still out on a final definitive statement. There are two legitimate points of view about these uh, uh, among sincere rabbinic personalities. By and large, the older, let's call it more right-wing orthodox world has been hesitant about accepting brainstem death and still prefers to use uh, conventional criteria. Indeed, we try very hard not to switch off machines. When we're not talking about transplants, when somebody in an intensive care unit, the brain is completely died, but the heart is beating. It's expensive to keep them going. Um, other people need the place and the machines. It would be much easier to switch off the machine. But in deference to the view that if you switch off a machine, you may indeed be killing somebody, um, it may not be actionable as murder because perhaps they're a trafer and various other questions. We try very hard to encourage, and I personally as a doctor, in those circumstances, very strongly encourage people, if possible, to wait until the heart stops spontaneously. First of all, there's this halakhic question. Secondly, I find that families are much more... The mourning process is much better when they know there was nothing we could have done. When a family is told we're switching off the machine while there's a beating heart, they're very often recriminations later, ruminations, did we do what was right, did we kill our mother? Mm. Whereas when you wait an extra day or, or 24 hours and the heart stops beating spontaneously, where clearly nothing could be done when the heart stopped by itself, I think that's much healthier, both halakhically and emotionally. So where we can, that is what we recommend. This has been a brief introduction to <laughs> donors who are dead. The dead donor rule, how can we take organs from dead people? Perhaps at some future time, Rabbi Mena, we can talk about the completely different issue of taking organs from living people, where we don't need a dead donor rule. Here we have the problem of what does it take to take a kidney out of a living person to save someone else? What about the danger to the donor? How do we get informed consent? This is another whole area, let's call it another tiger country of halachic issues which I'll be very happy to discuss at a future time fantastic thank you and if I might just ask should one sign that one doesn't want one organ of course of course the $64,000 question which I did not address <laughs> so of course that is up to one to uh, uh, individuals to decide 
the general recommendation has been, again, the general recommendation has been not to give blanket permission for organs to be taken. I'll tell you why. Whichever side of the debate you come down on, even if you fully accept brainstem death, we are very concerned that the criteria will not be fully observed, that there may be slippage in, in definitions of... We are concerned that a team anxious to take organs to save lives may not do these correctly. Correctly. We're also concerned that in non-Jewish countries, the criteria might not be applied as they would be in our circumstances. And therefore, not because, even if in, even if in principle, we would not be against it, blanket permission in a non-Jewish country, or shall I say also in a secular Israeli context, where halachic criteria are not necessarily applied, that would be problematic. And I would go so far as to say that in a country like England and Wales and the very other that are have done or are considering making the law a default permission that you have given for your organs to be taken and you need to sign to say that I don't want that I encourage people to sign not to give permission I would add that if you're the kind of person who very much wants your organs to be used to save lives and that's very important to you I would say add a clause which says under competent halachic guidance in fact Sharet Sedek Hospital has a card printed which says just that it has a donor card you can carry it in your wallet but can you print that in England? Well, let me tell you first about what happens in Israel. You carry the card, and it says, I hereby give permission for my organs to be used after death. You then check which organs you mean. Do you mean heart? Do you mean it's a, you check them off? And the final checkbox is, you may or may not choose to fill in under competent halachic guidance. Ask my orthodox rabbi. I have no problem with people doing that, so that when they're in extremists and clearly wanted their organs to be used, there can be oversight that it would be done halachically unacceptable fashion and there are many things that certainly could be like I said bone skin etc and perhaps even other organs could you do that in England today I think it's online so I don't know how much you certainly have the option in England today to stipulate which organs you want that is true incidentally that has been done with fascinating research why would it make a difference once I'm dead take my organs people have a much more emotional feeling about having their heart cut out as opposed to having their kidney cut out. So that's a fascinating thing. And will a lot of research has shown very, very interesting that among those people who are quite happy to have their organs taken after death, they're happy about only certain organs and not <laughs> others. My hands, my feet, possibly my heart. No. <laughs> so this is very, very interesting. But you do have those options. In a country that allows you to stipulate I have religious reservations. Please ask my religious authority. That certainly should be done. Blanket permission with no respect for Jewish law. We are very concerned that they may trample roughshod on halachic, very serious halachic matters, life and death questions. I think we are not and quite... And is there anything on that organ list in England that would be halachically permissible? Maybe the eyes or, or the skin that we said before? Or is everything? Yes. No, no. So again, if it's organs that will be taken clearly after death, that means they will observe the criteria, not just take everything at the same time because it's more convenient. I have to tell you that's called organ stripping, quite a brutal thing. In fact, a friend of mine who's an anesthetist asked me some time ago, can I assist at that? I'm keeping this brain dead person fresh and circulating and so forth and so on as an anesthetist. And then they cut open the base and they take everything. They strip all the organs for transplants, right? Well, they will take things that are essential and non-essential at the same time. Mm-hmm. So one would need to know that it's been done under correct. If it is done under correct halachic oversight and lives will be saved and so forth and so on, and you motivated to do that, provided you, if you're an observant Jew and you want the law halachic rules to be followed, do you need to stipulate that there will be that sort of oversight? Fantastic. Thank you very much, Rabbi Tatz, and look forward to seeing you next week. 